Please stand with me now as we hear God's word. We're going to be in Acts chapter 4, going into Acts 5. So our passage today is Acts 4, verse 32, going all the way to chapter 5, verse 11. And you'll see that these sections are a dramatic contrast between two things. So let's pay attention to the contrast that is given to us. Acts 4, verse 32. Let us hear now the living and abiding word of God. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked For all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet. And they distributed to each as anyone had need. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession, and he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And the young men arose and wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter answered her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet And breathed her last, and the young men came in and found her dead. And carrying her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. This is the very word of God. Amen. You may be, let us close, uh, let us uh, be seated and we will pray to our God. Our Father in heaven, as we come to this passage, we we ask that your spirit would bring illumination of it, uh, that we might understand it, that we might receive it, uh, that it would bring application to our hearts, it would bring those lessons of warning as well as lessons of encouragement for us. We pray this now in the name of Christ, amen. Well, as we read through the book of Acts, we have to agree that this book contains remarkable Stories, doesn't it? 
It is a record of what our God has done in history in the establishment of Christ's church in the world. And we need to remember that it is a book about what the Lord Jesus has done, about what the Holy Spirit has done. I've suggested many times during our time in this book so far that we need to understand this book as the recounting of the Acts of the risen Lord Jesus. Perhaps that's the better title than the Acts of the Apostles. Yes, the Apostles do things in the book, but more fundamental than that is what Jesus is doing and what the Holy Spirit of God is doing in history that determines what takes place in this book. It records how Jesus built his church by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that means, of course, that this book recounts for us supernatural events. That is, it records for us things that happened in history that are beyond the natural realm, beyond the the realm of just physical things that we are so familiar with, but with spiritual realities is what Acts is telling us about. Now that means that this book, just the very reading of this book, challenges the mindset of the modern man. Because the modern person, the modern American especially, has been influenced by a mindset of materialism. That worldview that says that only what you can touch and see and look at with a microscope is real. Those are the only real things to a materialist. Just these physical stuff of the universe. There's nothing beyond it. I recently read a book by... Richard Dawkins, the famous atheist and evolutionary biologist, I want to better understand what he thinks, how he thinks, how he responds to the Christian faith. And and in his book, he says that theology is not even a legitimate discipline. Nobody should be studying theology at all. Well, why does he say that? Well, God doesn't exist to him, and so he says you can't even study, you can't even learn about God because there is no such thing. For him, the world, the, in all of reality, is limited to those things which can be touched, which can be felt, which can be seen, which can be analyzed under a microscope or seen with a telescope. Of course, that's not a surprise. He, this is what he rejects. But for us, as we read the book of Acts, as we read a story like this one, We have to see that it is fundamental, it is essential for us as believers in the Lord that we believe in the realm of the supernatural. We believe in spiritual realities. We can't read this book without believing in spiritual realities, in believing in the sovereign God who created all things and who rules over all things. That's essential if we're going to believe the book of Acts. We must believe that Jesus died and rose again and ascended to heaven bodily if we're going to believe the book of Acts. We must believe in the existence of the Holy Spirit of God who does things in history if we're going to believe the book of Acts. Now I say all of that because what we have in our passage today is a dramatic contrast between two very different things. We have on one hand the, what the Holy Spirit did. We have the amazing generosity of God's people giving to one another in great abundance. And that's something the Holy Spirit did in God's people. 
That's the contrast on one side. The other side is that we have what Satan did. We have Satan filling the heart of Ananias and Sapphira to corrupt and uh, hurt the church through their deception and their hypocrisy. So we see these spiritual realities playing out. There's the Holy Spirit. There's the grace of God doing things in God's people. And then there's Satan, who wants to harm the church, who wants to uh, deceive the church and to corrupt it. And that reminds us that when, it, when we're dealing with the church of Jesus Christ, that we are not dealing with a man-made institution. Most fundamentally, we can of course talk about the history of our particular local church and the human actions that took place in its formation and then the people that were there and what took place. But above all of that, we must remember that the church of Jesus Christ and all of its local expressions that we see is a supernatural, God-established institution. And that means we need to take the church very seriously, doesn't it? If this is a supernatural, God-established institution, we must take the church very seriously. We must treat it with the reverence and the respect that it deserves because it is Jesus' work and it is Jesus' church. The church of Jesus is made up of people indwelt by a real, living, powerful Holy Spirit who is active in the church. But then we also remember that there is an enemy to the church. Of course, the world opposes Christ and his people. But there is this enemy, Satan, that ancient foe. He opposes the church. He opposes Christ. And he has certainly tried to harm the church through persecution so far in Acts. We know that that's one of the things that he does is he he persecutes, like we've heard about in Nigeria. He inspires evil activity. He tempts those to others in the world to harm Christ's people. But the, the challenge for Satan is that sometimes persecution just makes the church grow. Sometimes persecution very much backfires on Satan. And so he has other tactics. He has tactics of working within the church to harm the church. He can corrupt the church from within, perhaps instead of destroying it from the outside. And that's what we see with Ananias and Sapphira today. So as we look at this passage, this dramatic passage, I I have two aims for us, or two applications that I want to pursue. The first one is that I want us to have a renewed appreciation for the supernatural nature of the church. And how important the church is, and that we would value it. That we need to realize that what's happening in the church of Christ involves supernatural realities. God at work, or Satan in opposition. So we need to have a higher view of what takes place in the church and how we respond to it. Secondly, I hope that the effect of our passage will be that we learn to fear the Lord. Who is present with his church and who is committed to the purity of his church. We need to learn to rejoice with trembling. That's what Psalm 2 says, right, about responding to the Son of God, is we rejoice with trembling. Uh, Those things seem incompatible, but apparently they are not, and the Holy Spirit of God can teach us that kind of fear and joy. So let's look first at the positive side of our passage. I want to spend a fair amount of time on the positive, which is seen in Acts chapter 4 and the generosity of God's people. And that is what we begin with first, that God was at work in the church 
to produce incomparable generosity amongst God's people. And kids, this is the first point in your notes. Number one, the Holy Spirit gave the Christians extremely generous hearts. The Holy Spirit gave the Christians extremely generous hearts. Let's read uh, Acts 4, verse 32 again. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked. For all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. You perhaps remember that Acts chapter 2 has recorded the same kind of thing that the church had all things in common, they were giving generously to one another, and we see the same thing repeated here in chapter 4, which tells us that this was an ongoing uh, practice of the church. They were continuing to do these kinds of things, particularly in the church in Jerusalem. And this is a remarkable example of generosity. It's something that we're not really familiar with by experience. I, I dare say that none of us have been members of any church that did quite this. This is not just the uh, occasional gift card or the $100 here and there, but this is people going to the furthest extent to care for their brothers and sisters. They are taking that which is the most valuable to them. They're taking their lands and their possessions. They're selling them. They're giving them, asking the apostles, saying, please distribute this to anyone who has need. Now, as people read a passage like this, they think, well, should we do this? Is this exactly what we need to replicate in our particular local churches? And if so, how do we go about doing that? Well, I want to try to answer that question, but before I do, let us first see what is it that produced this kind of generosity? What was the fountain source of this kind of generous giving to one another? Because that will help us in understanding what we should do with this passage. But what was the fountain source? Well, as I see it, there are two causes that the passage gives us that explain how this came about. The two spiritual causes that fueled this act of generosity. And the first, I think, is found in that phrase, those who believed were of one heart and one soul. That is to say, these these believers were so united in love to one another, they so felt connected to one another, that it was as if they really were one. And when you feel so connected to somebody else, you cannot allow them to go on and suffer need and poverty and then not do something to help them. You, you, You feel it because you are one with them. So there was a unity. That was very important. There was a unity in the church that was produced by the Spirit of God to make them one heart and one soul, which made them think, all that I have is something that I can give. As the need may be, I can give. I can provide for the needs of others. Now there's a second cause as well, and it's found in this phrase in the text. Great grace was upon them all. Great grace. Grace. 
This, was, this grace of God was empowering the apostles and the other believers to testify to the truth of the gospel, but it was also empowering them to give generously to the needs of others. It was the grace of God in great measure that empowered them to do radical and amazing things that people would not normally do. So that helps us, I think, in viewing this immense generosity. It came from the great grace of God. It came from the unity of the body. And from that overflowed much generosity and much love for one another. Now, if these two things are absent, if we don't have unity, if we don't have much grace, then we're not going to see much generosity either. Where the Spirit of God is at work in the church, though, we're going to see unity, we're going to see love, we're going to see generosity, we're going to see compassion. It it comes from these hearts that have been touched by what God has done for them in Christ. You know how that, that is, of course, what Paul goes to in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, those great chapters on giving uh, in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Paul is describing the great grace of God that was poured out upon the, 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 the church in Achaia and how they were excited to give and to, to be generous, even though they weren't really that wealthy themselves. And then he points to what it was that had so transformed them. In 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, he says that you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who was rich and yet for our sake became poor, that we might become rich in him. It is when our hearts are captivated by the love of God in Christ that our covetousness, our natural covetousness, is dissolved and we are transformed and we are made to have generous hearts because we have been given so much through Christ. So as people have read this portion of Luke's account over the centuries, they've sometimes misunderstood its meaning, I think, and sometimes misused it to support wrong practices. And, and I want us to have a right understanding of how do we use this example from the early church. Of course, anytime you have biblical examples, you have to think through what is the appropriate application to us. It's not a direct command, but we need to learn from examples like this. And there have been disastrous attempts to apply this passage in the wrong manner. Perhaps the most frightening example was the attempt made in Munster, Germany in the early 1500s during the Reformation period. A number of the radical Anabaptists, they said, we are going to establish a new Jerusalem in Munster, and they had a very specific vision for that new Jerusalem. Part of the vision of that new Jerusalem was to abolish all private property, to institute a form of socialism by force upon its residents, They reinstituted polygamy, and they reinstituted the death penalty for a vast number of crimes. And it did not go well, needless to say. Uh, Within a year's time, the city was actually uh, surrounded by Roman Catholic armies. A great massacre occurred. Uh, Many in the city and its leaders were executed, and it did not go well. And one of the things that was incorrect about that attempt was the idea that we need to take an example like this, this all things in common example, and impose it by force, abolishing private property and making everybody submit to some sort of pattern. (laughs) And by doing that, they miss the fact that what happened in Acts 4 
is voluntary, spirit-driven generosity. It is not this top-down, imposed, socialistic system whereby we erase all private property, we make everybody put into a common pool, and we control people by force or even by the force of the sword. That's not what's happening in Acts chapter 4. Now, some have looked at Acts 4, and they've said, well, this actually was a very bad idea. In fact, they say it it contributed to the famine that happened in Jerusalem later. If If they had stopped doing this earlier, maybe there would not have been such a bad famine in Jerusalem. And I don't take it that way for a number of reasons. It is my view that what takes place here is intended for us to be seen as a good example of the Holy Spirit at work. So how should we understand what takes place here? Well, first of all, let's recognize this is not communism or socialism. The right of private property has not been abolished. Uh, Sharing here is not compulsory. In various forms of socialism, we know that wealth is redistributed by some government bureaucracy that determines what we're going to take from you and then give to another. But that's not what's happening here. In this passage, this giving, this generosity is a voluntary act, and people had freedom to determine how much they were going to give. We see this in Acts 5, verse 4, when Peter confronts Ananias. You notice what, what he says. It really helps us in understanding What's taking place here? Acts 5, verse 4. Peter says, While it remained, was it not your own? Notice the right to private property, right? Was it not your own? It did belong to Ananias and Sapphira. And then he goes on. After it was sold, was it not in your own control? Notice, it's not compulsory. It's not forced. Ananias has freedom all along the way to decide what he's going to do with this money. So that's one thing we need to recognize. This is not socialism. This is not communism. Secondly, let's also remember the circumstances of the Jerusalem church, which is facing persecution that is rapidly increasing against them. It is often the case that in situations of persecution that the sharing of God's people will be all the more necessary. I mean, imagine, you have a family in your church. Their house was raided a uh, number of them were killed. There's half, part, half of the family is left. They have nothing. Their house has been burned down. Uh, their land has been taken. What are you going to do? Well, you're going to help. You're going to serve. You're going to give something of what you have to them so they don't go hungry and they, they have clothes. This is the kind of circumstances that they were facing. Persecution will uh, increase the need for increased generosity and sharing. That's one of the reasons, of course, we are uh, giving to the persecuted church as we have opportunity and throughout the year and with the Thanksgiving offering, we are considering the needs of the persecuted church as being much greater than our own needs. Now, a third point I would make about this is that it is not universally the case in Acts that everybody sold their houses or their lands or their possessions. There's there's examples later in Acts, particularly Acts 12, where you see people using their homes for worship. That means they owned it. That means they held on to it. This was not a universally done practice, but it was done as the need occurred. As there was needs in the body of Christ, people would sell things to meet the need. The fourth thing to recognize about this is that this was done as needs occurred. It's actually in the Greek, it's in the imperfect tense. And the significance of that is that it's an ongoing activity. It's something that 
they kept doing. They kept selling things as a need occurred, and then they would fulfill the need. The wrong interpretation of it then would be to think that in the past, at one point in time, everybody sold everything and nobody had anything. That's not what the text is telling us. It's saying that as things were occurring, people would sell and then the need would be met. And so that helps us, I think, in understanding what is taking place here. I think what the early Christians were doing was actually fulfilling the vision of Deuteronomy 15. What did we read earlier in Deuteronomy 15, verse 4? It says, But there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance to possess. So the Lord was committed to the welfare of his people, and he was committed to his people being generous to one another. He says, you cannot refuse your brother if he has real need. You need to step up. You need to help. You're not going to let him go hungry. You're not going to let him go without clothing. You're going to help your brother. Notice that our passage says needs, not wants. It's an important distinction. Needs, not wants. Modern socialism is fueled by the concept of envy. It's driven by this envious desire to have what somebody else has. I need to be equal or I need to be better than this other person. So I need to be equalized in my standard of living. Well, that's not what's even being talked about here. What we're dealing with is real needs. People that have needs of food and clothing and shelter, which is fundamental to human existence. These are the needs being met by the body of Christ. So what what should we do in application of this, brothers and sisters? I think the same principle exists for us that as needs occur within the body, we rise to the occasion to meet them however they need to be met. And yes, there's other matters of people, whether they're going to work. We know that there's a requirement for that in the scriptures. But in, uh, in general, what we see is that we need to rise to the occasion to help our brothers and sisters. And remember, this is the great grace of God. This is what the Holy Spirit has done in the church, is to produce this immense generosity. And so if we are those who have been blessed with the great grace of God, then our hearts will be open to the needs of others. Now, how do we grow in these things? Well, I hope that all of us have a desire to grow in generosity, to grow in compassionate love and care for others. Well, I think what we we can say is, okay, we're not in a situation of mass persecution. We don't have people losing their houses. We don't have people getting thrown into jail. What do we have right now? Well, what we have is an opportunity to grow in generosity right now. As we have been those immensely blessed with material provision uh, compared to most of the world, we have an opportunity to grow in generosity, I think that the tithing laws of the Old Testament serve as an excellent guide for our generosity. Not that we're limited to those by any means, but they guide us in giving a sense of what we should prioritize and how we should use the resources that God has given us. And if we're going to be prepared for a future situation of dramatic need like this, if we're going to have some major economic disaster which could happen, or we're going to have major persecution or famine or war... Well, what we can do right now is grow in generosity and we'll be better prepared when the time comes, when we need to do even more. We'll be ready to do it. And let's remember, brothers and sisters, that we are part of a global church. We have believing brothers and sisters. They follow the same Savior we do and they have real needs in other parts of the world. Uh, That's, of course, as I mentioned, why as we bring the Thanksgiving 
Thanksgiving offering uh, today, we are seeking to care for the least of these, Jesus' brethren. And we, we hear these stories of what's taking place in Nigeria, and we can't really fathom that as a daily experience of what is occurring there. And so we can rise to the occasion. We can, we can give out of the great abundance of our hearts and our material possessions to care for them. And so these are important questions for us, brothers and sisters. Do our hearts go out to them? Do we have hearts of compassion? Do we really show practical concern and then actually exercise ourselves in doing good to those that are in need? So that's the positive side of the passage. This is the grace of God at work. This is what the Holy Spirit produced. But Satan does not like the grace of God and what it does. Satan wants to harm the church, he wants to destroy the church, he wants to corrupt the church. And so Satan had an idea here, and Ananias and Sapphira were willing to countenance it and then do it. So let's look at this this event of Ananias and Sapphira. What did Satan do? What did Ananias and Sapphira do in giving way to the temptation of Satan? This is really the first negative example in Acts about the church. So far throughout Acts, we've seen all this positive description of what the church is doing and what God has done through the church. But this is a reminder to us that the church will always face challenges internally as well. There are no perfect churches. Every church is a mixture of truth and error to some degree, of good and bad. And the church is made up of sinners. So we know there's going to be challenges along the way. What Ananias and Sapphira did was to introduce into the church hypocrisy and deception. We need to understand what was the sin, what was the problem, what was the issue of Ananias and Sapphira. It was not that they didn't give everything to the church. Because Peter says as much. He says, you had freedom in this. You were not compelled to give a certain amount. That was not the issue. The issue was not how much they gave. The issue was their deception and their hypocrisy. So that brings us to the matter of hypocrisy. And kids, this is the second point in your notes. Just giving us a definition of hypocrisy, a very simple definition. Number two, hypocrisy is pretending to be somebody you really are not. It's like wearing a mask to cover your real face. Have you ever seen those party masks? Or maybe you've even gone to a party where they, you cover a mask, and that is not your face. It is a representation of something else. That is what people do when they act as hypocrites. They do not represent themselves truly before others. And what, in particular, Ananias and Sapphira wanted people to think of them was that they were more generous than they really were. They wanted the apostles and the church to think, we gave you everything that was sold. We were really generous. And perhaps they had just seen Barnabas giving this, this land and this possession. They said, oh, Barnabas, people love Barnabas. I want to be received and approved of like Barnabas. I want to be loved and appreciated. I'm going to present it as if I gave everything when in fact I really didn't. So we read... Chapter 5, verses 1 through 4 again. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira his wife sold a possession, and he kept back part of the proceeds. 
His wife also being aware of it and, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. This is a reminder for us of the supernatural realities that take place within the church of Christ. If we looked at this merely on a human level, what do we see? Well, we would just say, well, the apostles are leading this charity program, and people are selling, and Ananias and Sapphira gave something, but nobody would really know. Nobody would have seen the transaction. This never would have been discovered. But the church of of Jesus is the church that is indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. That Holy Spirit who knows and sees all things. The Holy Spirit who is a person who can discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Holy Spirit who cannot actually be deceived like we can be deceived. And apparently the Spirit gave this insight to Peter to know what had taken place. This ability to discern the lie that had happened. And so we see two different effects here, as I mentioned. We have the Holy Spirit's effects, and now we have Satan's effects. What did Satan do? What did Satan fill the heart to do of Ananias and Sapphira? Satan filled this couple's heart to lie to God, to lie to God's people, to be the hypocrites. Now we know that Ananias and Sapphira had their own fleshly heart desires, because it says in verse 4, why have you conceived this thing in your heart? But then Peter also says, why has Satan filled your heart? So we know that there's Satan at work. We know that there's this fleshly heart desire at work as well. And it reminds us that Satan can take advantage of our sinful desires if we give way to such temptations. We don't exactly know what Ananias and Sapphira were after, but we know that the intended effect, it seems, would have been that people thought of them as better than they really were. It's instructive to me that the very first instance of sin mentioned in the book of Acts is an act of deception and hypocrisy. This should elevate in our minds the fact that the church of Jesus is to be a place where truth is proclaimed. We know that in terms of preaching the gospel, we preach truth, but even how we represent one, uh, ourselves one to another is to be representations of truth and sincerity. The church of Jesus is a church of the redeemed who have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ, who can walk in the light, who can say, honestly, we are sinners, we need redemption, and they don't have to hide anymore. We don't need to act as hypocrites, making ourselves look better than we really are. We're not here to impress one another, because we're not by nature impressive. Now, if there was no forgiveness of sins, there's no redemption, then you can understand why hypocrisy is such a a natural part of human society, why so many people represent themselves untruthfully towards others. If you have no redemption, you have no... Uh, dealing with guilt or shame through the gospel. You have to just put on a good face. You have to make yourself look better. You have to hide who you really are because there's no solution for who you really are. But that's not the way the church of Jesus Christ works. We are brought into this fellowship as we come to 
the feet of Jesus Christ and we confess that we have sinned against God and that we are by nature unclean and that we have guilt and we are ashamed of our sins and we need cleansing. And then it tells us in the scriptures that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. And that enables us to walk in the light and to walk in fellowship. But Ananias and Sapphira were not willing to walk in the light. They wanted people to think of them in a certain way, which was not true. And what Ananias and Sapphira erred in thinking was that God didn't know this. That God didn't know the heart. Do they think that It's just the apostles they're dealing with, or it's just the other church members they're dealing with. Is it just the horizontal? And they they think, I can deceive people. It's not that hard. And indeed, sometimes it's not that hard to deceive people. Of course, we all desire more discernment. We all desire to be able to see more clearly uh, the reality behind things. But the truth is, we don't know everything. We can be deceived. But what is important for us to recognize here is that the church of Jesus Christ is not merely a human society. Jesus knows all things. The Holy Spirit knows all things. And you can't fool God. You can't deceive him. You can't play a trick on God and he's not going to know who you really are or what you've really done. It's not possible. No matter how well you present yourself, no matter how artfully you deceive others, God knows your heart. He knows all things about you. He knows you better than you know yourself. As Hebrews 4 verse 12 says, the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom We must give account. Now, if this is the case, then we see the folly of trying to represent ourselves as other than we really are in some deceitful way. God already knows us. And this this illustrates for us two very different mindsets. It illustrates for us the mindset of the way the world thinks. The world in general, when it comes to human relationships, is trying to please and impress others in order to get something from others. People, people are by nature people pleasers. They want to be accepted and approved and loved and honored by others. And so people will do whatever it takes to look good before others. They live by the fear of men, and they live to please man and then to be pleased themselves. But the other mindset that we are called to have as the followers of Christ is to make it our aim to please God in all that we do. And when it is our mindset to please God, it changes everything about how we act. It makes it so much easier, too, because you have an audience of one. It's hard when you're trying to please a thousand different people with all these different competing priorities and interests. But when you have an audience of one, when you have... God who has revealed his will for us, then it's clear what we must do. We will know what pleases God. And one of the things God is pleased with in his church is honesty and sincerity. But Ananias and Sapphira, they did not value this. They did not seek to please God. And they did not fear God and what they did. They were testing God. They were testing whether God would do anything about the deception. 
Verse 9, Peter says that to Sapphira. Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. As people look at this, this fearful passage and they think about this dramatic moment, the fact that God killed these, these two, took their lives from them, people have wondered, well, are Ananias and Sapphira even real believers? Are, are they, were they really saved? Do they really know the Lord? Well, I, I'm not sure that that question can be answered definitively. There's much debate about that. But one thing I will say is that There are examples, I think, of where the discipline of God can be severe, even upon those who are truly members of the Church of Christ. 1 Corinthians 5, when Paul speaks about delivering over one unto Satan, he says the purpose of that delivery to Satan will be that their spirit is saved on the day of the Lord Jesus. He, He anticipates that part of that giving over to Satan in the form of church discipline will be that that person is indeed redeemed and restored but it will come perhaps at the destruction of their flesh. Great suffering, perhaps. In 1 Corinthians 11, we learn that there were some taking the Lord's Supper wrongfully that had died as a result. Were they real believers in Christ? I I don't have any reason to doubt, perhaps, that they were. Either way, it's it's a sobering incident for us to consider, isn't it? It was meant to produce a fear of God in the church. And that's what we need to see here as our final point, was the effect of this event. This this is a very serious example for us that should cause a sense of sobriety as we deal with matters of the church, that the church is Jesus' institution, and how we treat it is of the utmost importance. It's a shocking passage. When you, when you come to it and you say, what does this passage mean? Well, I can put it in a very simple sentence. God killed Ananias and Sapphira. That shocks people. And why did God kill them? Because they attempted to deceive the church and engage in hypocrisy. And the Lord, zealous for the purity of his church, he did not allow this to go on. He did indeed make here an example through Ananias and Sapphira of what the Lord thinks about such things. And that is the second application that I want us to be impressed by, to be awakened to, is that we need to fear the Lord of the church. Kids, this is the third point in your notes. Number three, God's judgments should cause us to fear him and honor him. We see that that was the effect upon the church in verses 10 through 11. It says of Sapphira, immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last, and the young men came in and found her dead. And carrying her out, buried her by her husband. And here's the effect. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. What I want us to understand today is that the fear of God is absolutely essential to our walking with the Lord rightly, to knowing the Lord rightly, and as an essential manifestation of our saving faith in the Lord. And yet, the fear of God is one of the most misunderstood and perhaps least practiced realities around us. 
You can see how little people understand this when you, when you might ask somebody that's very unfamiliar with the Bible. You say, well, should we fear God? And there's this intuitive gut response that says, that's not what I should do. No, people, people don't understand this concept so often. You sometimes get a very puzzled look or an immediate denial. People do not understand how essential this is or what it really means. And that just illustrates how far our culture has departed from an understanding of God as he has revealed himself in his word. Because the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. This is basic. It's foundational. It's what the scriptures tell us. How essential is this, this fear of God? And what does it look like in the life of a believer? Now, one of my favorite examples, I think, of clarifying this for us is found... In Psalm 119. And I love how this appears in Psalm 119 because Psalm 119 is an expression of faith in the heart of a true believer. Psalm 119 is not a legalistic psalm of, of written by someone who doesn't understand God's grace, doesn't understand that we're saved by faith in the Lord's mercy. It's not written by someone that's cowering in fear of God's judgment and they think that they have to make their way to heaven through this gradation of good works. That's not what the psalm is about. And I could give you many examples of that to show that Psalm 119 is written from a grace-filled perspective of a believer who trusts in the mercy of God. But in Psalm 119, verse 120, what does this writer say under the inspiration of the Spirit? Psalm 119, verse 120. My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. Is this the right response of a godly man or a godly woman to say these words? Can you pray this? Can you say this? I I tremble for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. Well, there's, there's a sense in which we say, do we fear the judgment of God if we are in Christ? Well, we respond with God's promises. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, right? This is the promise of God. It gives us a sense of assurance and confidence that by faith in Christ, we are received by the Father, and there is not going to be any judgment that falls upon us. Yes, we are confident of that. But do we still tremble? Do we fear the judgments of God? Well, Paul, writing in 2 Corinthians 5, he speaks about the, the effect of contemplating the judgment seat of the Lord. And this is Paul, who is very confident in the grace of God. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, he says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, what is the effect of this? Verse 11, Knowing, therefore, the terror the terror of the Lord. We persuade men. But we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. So he says, we we consider the judgment seat of God. We remember that every single human being will stand before that judgment seat. And because we know this, we know the terror of the Lord. And this gives us a sober sense of the reality of his judgments. It gives us a sense of the fear of God. It gives us a, a sense of, our, of concern for others that will face that judgment. Whenever we behold the judgments of God, it ought to produce a sense, an appropriate sense of trembling with joy. 
Trembling mixed with joy, I will say. Joy because God has redeemed us and has been merciful to us, but trembling because he is a God of righteousness and a God of judgment. If you had been there in Genesis, in the days of Abraham, up on the hill, to witness the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah as the Lord rained fire and brimstone upon those cities, would you have trembled? If you had been there in the ark and you watched as the flood waters engulfed those that were below and were not in the ark, would you have trembled? If you wouldn't have trembled, then you weren't sufficiently paying attention to what was taking place. You weren't responding rightly to the reality of what was taking place. If you had seen the crucifixion of Christ with your own eyes and the judgment of God upon him, would you have trembled? When the Son of God took upon himself the sins of the world, when he uttered those words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When darkness fell upon the land for three hours, would you have trembled? As we think about the death of our Lord, it should give us a sense of the fear of God as well as love for God and thankfulness for God because we see in it the judgment of God as well as his mercy perfectly displayed in the cross. It is appropriate for us to tremble with rejoicing. We need not fear the punishment or condemnation of the law, since the gospel promises us freedom from such condemnation. But we yet still must fear the Lord because of who he is. That's what we had in Hebrews 12 at the beginning of the service, that therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us worship our God with reverence in awe or godly fear, for our God is and always will be a consuming fire. And so, brothers and sisters, it will be to the health and the growth of our church if we learn to rejoice with trembling. If we learn to fear the Lord of the church. And, and then on going back to the positive side of what we've seen in our passage today, uh, it ought to be our prayer that the great grace of God would be upon us so that we wouldn't have the Ananias and Sapphira situations, but that we would have this abundant love and compassion and mercy for one another. And if we see that, then we have many reasons to praise our God for what he has done. And I do give thanks to God because I have seen much of that grace of God amongst us. Amen. So let let us close in prayer together today. Our God and Father, you are to be feared, for you are the Holy One. You are a consuming fire. We thank you for the great things that you have done in the church by the power of the Holy Spirit. We thank you for what you've done in our church. We thank you for the grace of God that has been manifested amongst us to give us hearts that love And we ask for great grace, greater measures of grace to be upon us, that you would transform us, that you would grow us. I pray that none of us would be given way to the temptation of hypocrisy and deception, feeling like we need to impress others, but that we would come honestly, sincerely, by faith in Christ, set free from guilt and shame, knowing that we are loved through Christ. And so we ask, Lord, that you would teach us from this passage today. We pray this in the name of our Lord. Amen.